Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Like 80% of people had a reduction in suicidal ideation in six months follow up. And again, this is, it's a very religious society. Having suicidal ideations or attempting suicide is a sin here. You know, it's, it's a very Christian setting. It's, it haunts people even more. And the families, you know, so there's a lot of pressure on people to be okay when they're not okay. And so we're giving this safe space and that's exactly what we want to do, giving that safe space and say, you know what, here you can talk and here you will learn what it means when you have kufungi sisa, when you think too much, when you have depression, anxiety, and how that can be decreased with your own help. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, this is Ann, and today's guest, I promise, is going to touch your heart and really expand the way we think of mental health treatment options throughout the world especially in areas that have quite limited access sometimes to mental health care. So my co-host Sue Marriott talks with Dr. Ruth Fahai, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in trauma and EMDR, and she is the co-director of a truly outstanding program in Zimbabwe called the Friendship Bench. Zimbabwe is a country that has experienced, as Ruth will discuss, a great deal of difficulty and trauma. Its population struggles, just like many of us, with depression and suicide and other mental health issues. And yet, there are 12 psychiatrists for 14 million people, approximately. So if we stop to think about the math, that's just painful. And yet, there's so many ways to care for individuals out there besides the traditional mental health Western model. And this program really dives deep into that. So the Friendship Bitch was born out of this need to serve so many with such little resources. But what they did, and you're going to hear about it, is they've turned to an amazing resource that exists in every community across Zimbabwe. And that is the Grandmothers. This program trains the Grandmothers in the evidence-based talk therapy as well as cognitive behavioral therapy and gives them a location, the bench and active resources with technology to keep this up and support them. And this program continues to expand and is expanded outside of Zimbabwe all the way from what I understand, even into New York city, because to stop to think about what a resources, a resource grandmothers can be in creating a safe place in a sense of belonging and community and reaching those who really need that level of trust. So this program not only sounds and feels good, it's been studied empirically and it's showing very positive results with significant decrease in suicidality and depression. So it's a very powerful program. And you'll find the research in the show notes as always, because we're pleased that once again, that we can really bring to you a trusted 
cutting edge content about increasing security in the world. And so this program does that. Before we jump in, I want to do a big shout out. Thank you to our Neuronard Patreons who help us produce this kind of content and get it out there. We really couldn't do it without you and we appreciate the support. For those of you that think you could or have the resources to jump in in as little as $5 a month, help get this type of programming out, we would really be grateful. You could just go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. Without further ado, here is co-host Sue Marriott's discussion with Dr. Ruth Verhey. So hey, everybody. I'm so excited to bring you a new friend that we have discovered. Her name is Dr. Ruth Verhey. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. I'm excited to be here. So we are recording about actually many things, but what strikes me first is that I'm calling in from Austin, Texas, and you are in a very other part of the world from Zimbabwe. And just the difference of our setting is going to kind of set the tone of our conversation a little bit, right? Where we have the wealth and the psychological I don't know, you know, where we can get so full of ourselves with our diagnoses and all of our pharmaceuticals and all of our theory. And there's something about practicing mental health in a community where that you can go back to the basics of what actually works. Is that a fair way to kind of think about it? It's like a beautiful would- way to say it, yeah. So Zimbabwe is like a low-income country. You're absolutely right. I think we've got one psychiatrist per 1.5 million inhabitants or something, and probably one psychologist per 1 million inhabitants. And the whole sort of westernized mental health model is really not serviced well here. And and that, I guess, opens up a whole lot of discussions in the first place, right? Is right. Is our westernized model the one that should help forward mental health in the long run. Yeah, that's right. So would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself to give our listeners context? Okay, so I am a clinical psychologist and I have been living in Zimbabwe for 16 years now. So my Zimbabwean friends say I'm part of Zimbabwe. I'm a Zimbabwean. So thanks for that, people. And I'm originally from Germany. And I was trained in Germany and just ended up living here. And I am involved with a really cool and amazing mental health project that we want to talk about, Sue and I, right? And present to the world a little bit more. And I've been with that project or program. We're now really a program for many years, like 10 years plus 12 years or something. We, We don't even remember so clearly because when we started Nobody wrote down, we're going to start today on the whatever of the year, whatever. So it kind of like a mindset. It's like, when, what did we do? And how did this all come together? So, yeah, and I'm a trauma therapist. So I, I have a private practice as well. And I'm EMDR consultant and work a lot with basically anything that I can get my hands on or that people bring to my office. So that's my one side. And then the other side is doing research and developing the program really for the majority of the people. So our mental health program addresses 
what we call common mental disorders and common mental disorders are depression, anxiety, also substance use disorders. And I think also any kind of stress-related disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder or acute stress disorder or any of those fall into that. And basically we call them common because they are common. They are very common. A lot of people are affected by them. And I think what we see, especially in our setting, is that a lot of people don't even know that they are affected by something that can be treated. So shall I go into more details about Friendship Bench? Yeah, we would love to hear more around, I guess our ARC can be helping uh, folks hear about this absolutely incredible, evidence-based, scalable program that can be spread around the world. (laughs) You know, as you're listening, you can think about, you know, opportunities locally. And then also, I have an ear for like what actually works, what you have found that has been most useful. So tell us all about it. So our program is called the Friendship Bench and we started here in Zimbabwe and our mission is really to create safe spaces and that sense of belonging in communities just in, in order to enhance quality of life for people. And just to go back quickly, like I said, initially Zimbabwe is a low-income country in Southern Africa. It's a landlocked country with a population of roughly 15 million people. A lot of areas of Zimbabwe are quite arid and not very easily to live in. I think we've got about a 60% population lives rural and, and lives from farming and this often subsistence farming. We have climate change. Definitely, we notice that very strongly. So there's food insecurity. Two years ago, it was a bad drought where also a lot of cattle died. And so, so in general, it's, it's a very poor setting. So the other 40% live in urban areas. And there's really only one big city, which is the capital, Harare, where I am. And then there are a few smaller cities. And yeah, and Zimbabwe has, I think, has a very rich history. If anybody wants to listen into those things and research, it's been independent for 40 years now, roughly. And actually for 40 years, that's it. And it has gone through a lot of ups and downs. And me, as I said, as a trauma therapist, still see a lot of those consequences of there was an independence war, there was colonialism before, there was apartheid, different, but same kind of structure. So that definitely is in the population. And for the past 20 years, unfortunately, Zimbabwe has gone downhill very much. So it's a lot more poverty, super high level of formal unemployment, and people don't have much future chances, really. Then also, as you might all know, Southern African region is the hardest hit by HIV in the world. And Zimbabwe has successfully decreased the prevalence of HIV sort of nationwide to, I think, down to 11% or something. So what in the past was really bad and people died a lot related to HIV. So there's a whole generation who's lost parents. And it's also a classic for Southern African countries that grandparents then raise their grandchildren. It's almost like they they do a second round of being mother or father or both, you know, because a a whole lot of people have lost their lives. Uh, Now with the availability of very strong an effective medication like antiretroviral medication, the, the death rates have gone down. The only thing that we notice now is that the incidence, so the new cases for HIV, is the highest in young people. So in your 15 to 24, I think, is the age group, which is scary. This is a scary thing. This means we're looking at people growing up 
who will live with the virus and have to sort of make adjustments. At the same side, the good thing is too, there's a huge, great success happening with the prevention of mother to child transmission that is going really, really well here in the region. So a lot of babies are born negative to a mother who lives with HIV. And that is, of course, wonderful, you know. So going back to the friendship bench, in 2006, my colleague Dixon Chibanda started this program. He's a psychiatrist and he wanted to look at the levels of depression in an urban setting in what we call a primary healthcare clinic after like a governmental, I'm always like a bit careful of how I say this, but there was like a, like they call it a cleanup operation. So they basically looked into illegal vendors and illegal structures. And I guess it's understandable from a governmental point of view, but it affected heaps and heaps of people. What we actually look at like 1.5 million people being psychologically affected by this cleanup. Mm. So Dixon Chibanda looked then at the prevalence and found like, I think 30 plus percent of all those people who go to a primary healthcare clinic being screened high, like scoring high on a screening tool for depression and anxiety. And that's where and the whole what thing the became name? interesting. What is the name of depression? What is it called there? Oh, it's called Kufungi Sisa. And yes. that means thinking too much. So Kufungi Sisa is a is something everybody knows, but people wouldn't necessarily think it is something that can be treated. You just live with it. You have it. And that's what we always find in clients that come to the friendship bench, that they are almost like excited about being seen, about being explained that this is something real and they don't have to suffer from it and they don't have to wait for it to go away. They can actually do something about it. So by now... Listeners might think, what is this friendship bench thing? You know, maybe they've Googled us already. So we're actually literally talking about a bench. And this story comes from the fact that every community has a little primary healthcare clinic, but no space, no extra room, no mental health office or anything like that. So basically, we were told the only thing you can do here is you can put a bench outside in the garden. So often primary healthcare clinics are actually, they have like a bit of a, like a land around it, like a bit of a garden, depending on the season, whether it's actually a garden or a bit of a desert, you know, so, because we have rainy season and a dry season. So basically we have a wooden park bench, depending on the size of the clinic, which depends on the population it serves. We might have one bench or we might have eight benches in a clinic. And now in comes the delivering agents, how we call them, which we call the grandmothers. And we actually had quite a bit of media coverage in the US as well. So maybe some people have heard about it, like something was in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. And there was a lot of interest in our program. There was a fantastic TED Talk true that yes, Dixon's yes. TED talk about why he trains grandmothers exactly yes. we never called them the grandmothers so the story around the grandmothers is when um, the independence came and Zimbabwe became Zimbabwe some very smart people employed a cadre called health promoters and so every city has uh, in the health department has this cadre of health promoters and they are traditionally a va- make create awareness around cholera outbreaks or baby vaccinations or you know any of those things you know so they are literally 
they're street workers. I mean, yes, they're at the clinic, but they're walking around in their communities. They live in the same communities as the clinic, as they work, and they know their neighbors. They know their people, you know? And I always say, because they know everybody, they also have that authority to literally go into your house and say, hey, you, you haven't been to the clinic and why are your children not at school and why do you all look so ragged and rough and you know what's going on here, come talk to me, you know? So these people were employed like in the 80s, 90s, and then they grew old on their job. I mean, this is like 30 something plus years later. So we have grandmothers literally I think our oldest is 85 and she's still working. So it's definitely a passion job. They are employed. They get a bit of um, like an allowance, but it's definitely not something you can get rich on, you know. And interestingly enough, in Harare, they're all women. That's why this grandmother thing stuck so much too. Like we're in two other cities here in Zim as well. And they're also men. So we also have grandfathers, but we just labeled the job grandmother, whether you're male or female or other, it doesn't matter. Your job is called grandmother. And then put this in the context of a very traditional African society that values the elders very, very much. So that adds to the authority of these people, these grandmothers who can literally say to you, come and talk to me and then sit down and talk. And now to come to the actual intervention, which is evidence-based. So at Friendship Bench, we offer problem-solving therapy. So the good old cognitive behavioral therapy style, you know, and we sort of developed a training around that. And then over time, so we've been running since 2006, I think. Yep. So it's a long time. Lots of research gone into it. We also noticed there is like a local adaptation of this. And again, we didn't plan this. This just grew organically by doing. So we just kept observing the grandmothers. What are you doing? How are you naming this? How do you explain this to your clients? And of, of course, this is all happening in, in one of the local languages that's called Shona. They came up with amazing terms. So the first step in problem solving therapy that we sort of Westerners or psychologically trained people like amongst like the therapists amongst listeners or clients who've had this before, it is your discuss what's going on and select what you want to work on and define your goal and all these things. In our context, we call that opening up the mind. Kuvura Pfungwa in Shona. So opening up the mind is literally, and again, this put this in the context of a society that is stigmatizing mental health or mental illness highly. I would say like in any other community in the world, any kind of mental health issues are stigmatized and people self-stigmatize and don't go for help. And that's the same here, right? So opening up the mind is, in my eyes, a beautiful word to encourage someone to, to talk. We all know it. Like we all know if we talk, we start to make more sense. Like literally, like our prefrontal cortex can kick in. You know, like we make sense, we put it in context. It makes me think of, you know, Peter Fonagy's reflective function, some of the early, so this is kind of translating it. Dan Siegel talks about mindsight. So it sounds like opening up the mind, and I can't tell you, I'm so excited about this. It's so lovely to hear it translated so that we get out of our jargon and out of all of our ideas. So when it's taught back to us in these core ways, it feels like we have so much to learn, right? But I think if I'm understanding right, opening up the mind then would both reflective function or mindsight, meaning getting interested in your mind, 
like even beginning to observe your own mind, but then also getting interested in other people's minds, what's going on behind the eyes and being able to read people to begin to set up the co-regulatory system. But the very first thing is that we have to even begin to get interested and curious about what's going on inside our noggin. (laughs) So does that kind of fit with that first phase? Yeah, that fits totally with the first phase. I always like to tell that story as well. So when we train our grandmothers, and again, remember what I said about the elders are respected. So culturally, and if there are any sort of Zimbabweans in the, in the auditorium here, you know, they will relate to this. You go to your auntie, you go to your uncle, you ask them how you should solve a problem, which translates traditionally to they will tell you what to do. And again, this is, I think, all over the world, people love giving advice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we all know we like to give advice because we like to give advice, not because we care whether our advice is good from the person we give the advice to, you know? And, and as therapists, we know that, you know? It's just, we, we were taught to sit back and say, Mm-mm, not my story to solve your story, you know? So it was hard for our grandmothers to learn that they have to stop doing what they were accustomed to, you know, and we had to practice over and over again. And of course we do all these, like the counseling skills, like the active listening, you know, the the whole show your empathy. And I think we had it easy because these women just came with empathy already. Mm -hmm. They came with passion and a love for their community. It's almost like they are like, what do you call that? Like guardians for their communities. You know, like I said, they pick up people, you know, they are, they've got an interest in holding this together, which I think, again, going back, the Western world can learn so much from. This is also supported by these grandmothers don't move. I mean, Zimbabwe has a huge brain drain. A lot of the sort of educated people had left and they're probably now God knows where, but not here anymore. Fully understandable. But these grandmothers, they stayed. They've been living in these communities for whatever, forever. And therefore they saw the generations come and go. So once they learned, okay, I'm listening here. I am paraphrasing. I am asking questions. I want to know more, you know, like, even if at the beginning it was like a theoretical curiosity, I think they got the curiosity, you know, like, tell me, talk, 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 you know, again, like everywhere in the world, we are told we have to say, stop crying to someone. So a big thing of our training is no, let people show their emotions. If someone cries, maybe pat their hand if that's okay, you know, or just sit there, pass them a handkerchief if you have one, you know, and not then just let it happen. Stop trying to control what someone else experiences. And then the grandmothers came back and said, wow, since I've been doing this, it helps me at home. It helps me with my family. It helps me with my grandchildren that I'm raising. You know, it helps me with all my responsibility. It helps me with my other clients who maybe don't take their medication or don't want to come and get their child immunized or like about the medication. There's a link about if people suffer from depression, medication adherence goes down the drain. And that's a huge problem in our setting. Therefore, the public health issue around fighting depression is huge definitely huge you know it's the same thing if a mother is depressed she can't look after her child properly like children don't thrive 
And when you mean medication compliance, in this case, you're not talking about their antidepressant medication. You're talking about medicine for cholera, for HIV. Especially for HIV. So your yes. antiretrovirals. Yes. No, antidepressants, all of those, we don't have. Nobody can afford right. that stuff, right. you know. I mean, yes, people, if they can get medication and they're given medication, they will take if they can. But especially the antiretroviral. Actually, we have one study where we work with young people who live with HIV what comes out there, that is, that is a subgroup that is definitely a little bit forgotten as well. We, we got reports from young people with lots of depression, living with HIV and really feeling suicidal and saying, I'm just stopping to take my medication, you know? then at some stage, I'll just die. So it's not, I'm not sort of actively killing myself tomorrow or next week, but I'm just like disregarding this absolutely crucial stuff that I have to take here, yeah, my medication, you know? So, but that's something from there. So the grandmothers come in with passion. They come in with non-judgment, which we are making a huge fuss about in the training because it's super important. And again, in a traditional society, I mean, I'd love to hear more about your take on this in, in the U.S. because I mean, I've, I've never lived in the U.S., but I understand there's a lot of diversity as well and, and different political ideas and the lifestyles. And from what I understand, the coast areas are very more modern and liberal compared to the, the inside of the country, right? And it's similar here. Urban settings will always be different from rural settings. And there is societal judgment, you know, if someone is defined with the LGBTQI or something, they're probably really safe with the grandmothers because with the grandmothers, we talk about those kind of things. You know, we're like, this is normal. This is stuff. Talk to them, you know. So we're, so, we're really excited about our program. Oh, mm -hmm. I can completely see how that that would click and work because with the authority of the grandmother, then them demonstrating their love and acceptance of these things that would otherwise be questioned or scare people or be too different. That even almost feels like a political act. <laughs> but I know that's not what it's about. But the other part of it is that I hear in, you know, again, the traditional, and this is not limited there for sure, that like, if we're unsure what to do, we get a little older, and we begin to tell people what to do. And then if they don't follow our advice, <laughs> then we just get mad, and then we blame them. And it's their problem. I mean, therapists even do this, right? Like we call it resistance. So we're doing fine, but it's the client that's not doing what we're saying to do. And so it's their problem. <laughs> so just the training around listening and relieving the listener, the grandmothers in this case, of the requirement to fix anything, that is even regulating for the listener that their job is just to create this open space and safety to say more, that like, again, I'm just thinking of this from a neurobiological standpoint. It's like, that's already comforting and regulating for the listener. So then they know what to do instead of seeing the tears and beginning to panic or beginning to feel responsible. You know, all the things that happen to us if we're not trained, it sounds like that part of the training is being able to hold and just, I have this image of this heart and this bosoms, you know, grandmother bosoms and these big open arms. And yeah, who wouldn't want that? I'll sign me up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the thing is like, this reflects in like the friendship benches values as well. We want this 
empathy and connection, how we call it, you know, that just has to be there. And like, exactly. I love how you say that with the core regulation. I'm just there. I hold the space. It's safe. And we're excited that we can say we're anchored in research. We've got this evidence stuff. We've done like rigorous trials and we keep doing those. And which I find very important as well is like we have part of the friendship bench is what we call a peer support group. And again, a lot of this wasn't planned at the beginning, you know, like things grew because we had to react to needs and we kind of came up with what can we do? And what always comes up, there's a huge link between poverty and depression, you know? And like, if you go back to that old model of learned helplessness and you have generational poverty and just nothing ever works and then add like an independence war on it and death left right and center and oppression and just bad you know it's hard for people to come out of that because it's the the role model that says i'm going to make it it's just not happening right so what we figured out is we can't just sit and talk on the bench that's not enough we have to have something and we tried and we played around and we came up with what we call now an income generation component and again like tons of people are trying to do this you know i mean there's so many ngos and, and activities around things so our income generation component was like When you have come to the bench, like in our publications, we speak about four to six sessions, but in general, people can come as often as they want. And sometimes people even only come once because we figured out the first session is the most important. All the stuff can happen in the first session and then maybe life happens and you can't make it to come back, you know, but if you want to come back and if you want to come into the support group, then in the support group, we were then playing around with teaching people how to crochet bags out of old plastic. So cut up old plastic bags and literally crochet, like the old crochet stuff, you know, that probably also a lot of people would associate with my grandmother. You know, she knitted socks or she crocheted hats. So I don't know, blankets or I don't know, whatever. And so we had enormous success with that as well, that people feel we're sitting in a group, we're safe, we've all been through the intervention, we make these bags, and it's just so beautiful to hear the anecdotal stories of individuals who then say, I had no money, I had my children, I wanted to walk in front of a bus, you know, and then the grandmother talked to me, and then I come to the group now, And I suddenly, I sell my bags or my hats or whatever I make there, you know, and now I took that money and then now I have a little roadside stall and I I sell sweets or tomatoes or God knows what, you know, like hand hand to mouth always like really brings me back to coronavirus and wanting to send someone like that home for three weeks and say, have enough food at home is impossible, right? Like if I live off my daily earnings, but yeah, I'm sure we've all heard of those things in different settings of the world and how some of the recommendations don't work, but it's beautiful to hear how some people sort of make it happen. I mean, in in psychology, we call that behavioral activation, you know, like you get reintegrated, you have sense of achievement, you get sort of held by your hand to believe in yourself again, and somehow we feel better. And I mean, we had enormous success in our clinical trial when it comes, I think, what did we say? Like 80% of people had a reduction in suicidal ideation in six months follow-up. And again, this is, it's a very religious society. Having suicidal ideations or attempting suicide is a sin here. You know, it's, it's a very Christian setting it's, that haunts people even more and the families, you know, so there's a lot of pressure on people to be okay when they're not okay. And so we're giving this safe space and that's exactly what we want to do, giving that safe space and say, you know what, here you can talk and here you will learn what it means 
when you have kufungi sisa, when you think too much, when you have depression, anxiety, and how that can be decreased with your own help. Hi, I'm just going to jump in for just a moment. As Ruth and Sue are talking about this amazing program of getting mental health services to those across the globe who might have a difficult time reaching it, we're thinking about all of you. And right now, it's probably never been a more important time to have your own support. So no matter where you're listening from in the world, you can have your own therapist and all you need is a telephone. Sometimes we want to get professional support, but it just isn't accessible to us or it just is, feels culturally off to get therapy or especially right now, face-to-face therapy isn't COVID safe quite yet in many areas. So Sue and I have checked out Better Help Services, and we really recommend it, and we want to suggest that you give it a try. They will match you with a professional therapist and provide care in multiple languages. And all you need is a phone. You could receive support through text, phone call, or even video, whatever works best for you, and at a time that works really well for you. So it's a very reasonable cost that can give you private therapy right away. It's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And what's really lovely about that, that they will give our listeners a 10% discount to try it out on their first month. Go to BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, backslash therapist uncensored to try it out and get the 10% discount. All right, thanks. Let's jump back in our show. You're opening the mind as the first phase Mm-hmm. behavioral activation is a part of it. And I can so, again, relate that one, again, the crocheting being regulatory, right? That it's something kind of meditative, but also, and so importantly, practical, that part of this is about poverty and, like you said, hand-to-mouth and survival. So being able to channel the social support into something that helps in this more concrete way. It just feels like it hits so many notes. So it's incredible. So I don't know if it's formalized, but the opening the mind is the first stage. What happens after that? After opening the mind. So we have chosen the problem. We have defined the problem. We have set the goal, you know, in our problem solving steps, basically. And we now make this plan, this smart action plan, right? Which is so, so, so important. And again, what we feel, and I think we can all relate to that, when we feel depressed and overwhelmed, it's like a huge mountain, right? So if someone then asks me the right questions and encourages me to say, no, no, we're not going up all the way to the mountain. Let's just do one step today. You know, Uh, that's all. I always like to joke about Lego blocks, you know, whoever knows Lego blocks and has played with Lego blocks, that system makes sense, right? We can take it apart and just look at the one little red Lego block and work with that. The rest wait, you know, and then it's learning a skill and, and bringing people back from this overwhelmed state to here and now only this. And maybe we're just working on the conflict you have with your neighbor or whatever it is, you know, you don't have to work with, my goodness, my 15 year old daughter is pregnant. I'm HIV positive. My husband beats me up and has now left with another person and I have no job and someone is sick. And, you know, that's all too much. It's way too much. Life can be way too much then. So in a situation like that, just so that we can really kind of understand. So someone comes in likely with all of those things, right? It'll be a layers and layers and layers of stressors and very real. So I had two thoughts about that. One is like, just can you give us an example then of like how one would move to a smart action plan with the stack of problems, you know what I mean? Just quickly. And then also, how do you protect these grandmothers and any of the folks in the listening position from their own overwhelm? Thank you so much for bringing that up. So say someone comes in, of course, a lot of the issues that people bring forward are financial. 
There's no doubt about that. And that's always a tricky one because the grandmother will have very similar experiences and very similar needs and, and panic around paying rent and buying food and school fees and you name it, you know? So we tried to make it very concrete, like as an, okay, so you need money for something. Can you explain exactly almost like what you need the money for? How much is the money? Like, almost like, like concretize it for people. So in that case, it becomes almost like a business plan, you know, and then figure out who can help. Have you done this before? What would you need? You know, like, but to have a plan, know what you need to do tomorrow or next week and obviously smart right like make it make it soon make it measurable you know make it timely whatever you know realistic and all those things and that becomes then almost this uplifting like now the person has opened the mind has done and, and that's our second step and that's kudzimuzira it's called in shona it's uplifting and then we go into sending the person out with that plan and it has to be i mean we, we all know that it has to be super concrete and Again, it's not me who told you how to do that. It's you who tells yourself how to do that. I'm just checking in with you, you know, and I'm just like, okay, when? But how do you get there? What, you have to take a bus? How are you going to pay for the bus? You know, and how do you know the person's there that you want to talk to? Like all of those details that most people forget, especially if we're like kind of cognitively impaired because we're so super depressed and stuff, you know. And then basically we like people to come back to sort of just tell how did it go? And sometimes, and this is another thing that I find interesting with the whole coronavirus hitting us here as well, the model of sitting on a bench together is just not really that good right now. <laughs> we still believe that in future and people will always want to sit together on a bench or on a floor or something. You know, the, the human contact is just something that stresses us so much when we can't have it too. So this whole physical distancing is, is an extra stressor. And so we have shifted to do a lot over the phone as much as we can. So we've trained all the grandmothers to do phone counseling, which is slightly different, as you know, right? And we don't have high tech ability here. Internet connectivity is not easy. WhatsApp is one of the things that everybody in Africa has and works but it cuts in the middle. You don't hear things, you know, it's just, it's tough. But that phase where I check in again, whether that is over the phone now, or I'm seeing you again. And if you don't come to the clinic, I might see you at the market or at the water hole where we get water, you know, that's what we then call strengthening. And that's Kusim Bisisa. And I can do that again and again and again. And maybe if I see you and you tell me, oh, it didn't work. Well, then we can just go back into the problem and say, wow, what do you think didn't work? What could you do differently, right? So, so very basic. And going back to what you said, that was one of my huge worries, the whole vicarious trauma for helpers, for basically frontline workers, if you come to think of it, with very little skill set or formal training. And we know that everybody works as a therapist. It's like, I personally always think that, you know, when I know, okay, this is what we can do. I feel fine. I can take anything, basically. Or it seems like I can take any my clients bring me. And so my worry was a lot around, whoa, how will the grandmothers cope? Less skill set they just don't have that much skill set they live in the same situation they've either experienced the same things already or they're currently experiencing them they just affect it around inside their own house whatever so i did a study with them to see about their own kufungisisa basically but also ptsd i was interested in that 
And lo and behold, it was absolutely astonishing to see that the prevalence in that population of the grandmother was tiny, was very, very small. So only the, a handful had a bit of PTSD and hardly nobody had any depression and anxiety. And then the whole team, like our research team, we were like, what happens? How can this, like they're super resilient, you know? So, so I've got a publication hopefully coming out at some stage. So I've just submitted that. But what makes them so resilient? And the ideas we had, besides what we researchers always say, is like, we have to put more research in this, you know. Um, one idea was that obviously they're, they're respected and they help people. And we all know that helping someone helps us, right? This connection building, the co-regulation, seeing someone Belonging. successfully working through their stuff. It's a connection. Human-human connection, understanding, listening, that must do something. So, and that's always, you know, when we started chatting about this and I was like, wow, this amazing podcast. Whoa, this is so, I love listening to your podcast anyway. So that's like even more exciting. And, and thinking about how we can all work more on creating this listening to each other. And I, I don't know, learn more about active listening. Take the time to listen to each other. Stop formulating your answers already while you're still listening. No, just just hold the space for everybody, you know? That's beautiful. That's said so beautifully. I mean, that sums up so much, doesn't it? Because like listening allows the person to come inside of you. And then as you take them in and into your mind, you're thinking of them and your heart, you take them in. And they feel that. And one, like with the grandmothers, then you're enriched. Like it helps you. And then the person being heard, really heard. Like, again, how often do we get that? Especially when there's crisis and we're in the weeds and we're in the rapids and we're going, going, going. So taking that space and being taken in and then being able to take yourself in, like instead of just like, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting. But like feeling the pain but being held with the pain. So anyway, I'm just really grooving on the, the power of this and the simplicity of it, which makes it scalable. Again, anyone listening, you know, what's your version, whether it be within your own family, like beginning to shift into more of a listening space, not solving problems, you know, really just mirroring and holding so that they can find their answers. That's good coaching if the people that are coaching rather than giving someone the, the list that then they'll just either comply because and then it's still your ideas or they'll resist. You know what I'm saying? That it's they haven't internalized it. So it's so beautiful because it's, it's so applicable to absolutely every single person listening right now, I believe. Sometimes we get too heady and explaining and sciency and it, we lose that whole heart of the listening. So I was thinking about the listening could be a remedy for the distrust that we all have. I think we all have such high levels of anxiety and fear. I mean, just thinking the coronavirus is this invisible, chronic, all over the place. You don't know, is it jumping from the next corner, you know? Oh, who's going to get it? I mean, there's just so much. And that is just one. Like once that has died down, then we think again about the global warming or we think about a war or we think about whatever, something closer to us. But I think we are all so hyped up in terms of this limbic response, this fear response that we all have. And I think if we can check in with each other more and help 
to open this, I can trust you because you are just here. You're just listening. You're not judging me. You're not going to kick me out of the community or of the group. I think this is almost like on a very primal level. You're not looking at your phone while I talk to you. You know, you're actually with me. If we can give that more, and I think children need that so much. Everybody needs that so much. It's human. I think we can all start. So what about you're naming some of these things and these threats, and our bodies aren't used to long-term threat, right? It's where our bodies are designed to get away from the scary predator, not like you said, this invisible, something we can't see that could be sitting in the corner that is always going to, you know, but how has the racial unrest, how has the protests and the long time coming and well-deserved pushback that sparked in the United States, how are you all seeing that in Africa? Like what's happening there? And is there a resonance? You know what I mean? What's that like for you? It's so interesting that you ask me that. I mean, I often, I often laugh because I'm like, I'm a foreigner and I I can just say what I want, you know, but it's, I mean, there's definitely racial tension here in this country. I can observe that and I can take my foreigner card and say, why are you saying this? And isn't that weird? And whatever, you know, so I think it does hit home here, especially, I mean, which African country wasn't colonized? Okay, Ethiopia would, would come out now, you know, but every country here in the region has a history of brutality that is just unbearable which is crazy. But at the same time, I must say that if you don't know what you eat tomorrow, some of these political things are not coming here, right? And if you don't have access to the internet, because you don't, you just don't, then you don't hear much about the world politics either, because it's just, A, we're trying to figure out how to make today work and how to make tomorrow work. And yeah, we're going back to the subsistence living. And I think that is, again, that is, like I said earlier on, that is, that can be chronic or that is often chronic, especially as we have like an ongoing inflation here. So it's a very hopeless situation in some form. And, and I mean, I definitely don't want to go into too much political discussions here. That's, that's definitely not my place. But I think if we can just bring people back to feeling like they've got agency in their lives And I think that is what you're talking about too. Like I'm listening to the news and I see the racial uprising. That's that's definitely something about agency and that's something about see me and it's enough, you know? And it's just always surprising for me. I mean, I've been I've been living internationally for I don't know, twenty years or something. So I haven't lived in Germany in long times. But again, I just hear and I visit and it is difficult for people to make sense out of things, you know, especially when they're, and again, let's go neuroscience here. If their amygdala picks up danger, you're not thinking, you're not taking in all this carefully selected material that you learned and stuff. You just go survival. What does this mean? You know? And yeah, actually that is something that I should add. Like what I always put in our training as well as breathing techniques, like a concept of mindfulness, often it gets actually used in our context here in a prayer form. And, and that, that is interesting as well, because I'm like, whatever works for you, if it helps you to focus and concentrate, wow, you know, that's where it goes. And then grandmothers tell me, yes, we pray. And then when I say, what do you pray about? Or what do you say? And you're like, yeah, we pray for, we ask God for a good problem solving session. I mean, how beautiful is that, right? So very practical, very sort of like set the tone. It's a secure relationship, 
right? It's an internalized, secure relationship. And, you know, here some of the unrest, part of it, I think, I hope, is sparking not like this, the whole concept of sort of whiteness and becoming aware of whiteness and getting more comfortable and like not just moving into acceptance, but more of like, how do we become not complicit, but like part of it, part of the dismantling. And you're right that when we're just surviving, and this has been intentional, right? If everyone's just surviving, you can't look up and think about larger concepts and ideas. And that boot on the neck as part of what kind of keeps it going. So we can almost think of like the what you're doing with this friendship bench is a bottom up intervention, where that you're really able to give safety in ways that aren't being provided institutionally. So it feels a little revolutionary, and wonderful from that perspective, for sure. So just reviewing really quickly, what you all have found, the way you think of it is like three phases where there's the opening up, Then the second phase is the concrete, like problem solving, which is called uplifting. So there's opening up, uplifting, and then strengthening. And then the strengthening is kind of more of the maintaining. The strengthening is even like maintaining the opening up and maintaining the problem solving and the uplifting so that it's not just that one issue that was identified, but strengthening being an ongoing, whether it be when you meet to uh, get water or whether it be if you meet at the clinic so that there's these small contacts that can be like little boosters. And when I translate that, is that right? You're nodding. Good. Because when I translate that to Western, there's like this, these arguments about, do you text clients? Do you let them text you? Things like that. You know, one way of thinking that might be if it's used in this way of strengthening of reinforcing, yes, I'm there. And yes, you can do this. I guess what I'm trying to say is getting out of our formal models of the four squares, that therapy only happens right here. You know what I mean? That it's that they can't know us, things like that, that this really kind of turns that on its head. What I'm wanting to do is infuse all of our Western thinking with this and not throwing out our ideas, but more of like deepening our understanding of what works. And simplifying it, really, because especially in this time of COVID, everyone's doing something different. Like I'm totally I have groups and I'm really thinking differently about my groups. Clients are in our homes with our Zoom. So it's really a great time to just reconsider whatever model that you've adopted that you feel is holy, you know what I mean, is the truth. And being able to open up, like do our own version of opening up and problem solving and strengthening which is really looking at what we're doing, why we're doing it. Do we have to keep doing it? Are there new ways? I just feel inspired by this conversation around all these levels of ways that we could apply it to ourselves, to our clients, our communities. Absolutely. Yeah, and we would love to. I mean, we get so many requests from people who want to start friendship bench or organizations, and we're totally up for it. So right now, as I said, we do a lot of research, but right now we're moving into wanting to do a lot of implementation as well. And we're already in in Malawi and in Kenya and on Zanzibar. And there's a friendship bench in New York, which is using our model. So that's really exciting about like having like a community response, easy access, because this is really about having easy access yeah, again, coming from the community. Yeah, com- coming from the each individual little pocket 
group that there are elders, there are leaders there. I can think of it on my block. I know exactly who it would be, you know, and she's not necessarily a grandmother, but she is the grandmother. She serves as the grandmother. And in every community, in every neighborhood, there's people either that could step into that role or that are naturally already are holding that role that people will listen to. They'll trust, they'll believe. It's wonderful. It's incredible. It's like, I'm so excited about it. So if someone was turned on by this and interested and wants to know more, like what would be steps that they could take to begin thinking about this implementation? So look at our website, www.friendshipbenchzimbabwe.org. There you can read all about it. There's also like reaching out to us. You can send us emails. Like I actually get some of the emails as well. So, and otherwise my colleague Jean will answer and we're building this whole idea of how do we do this best? Because of course we are, we're interested in what we call fidelity. So when we say we've got evidence for our model and you want to say you're doing it, please then use our model, right? So otherwise we can't say it, it is friendship engine where we can't say it's going to work, you know? Absolutely. Not that we, we, like, we totally want to improve it and, and work on it. But at the moment we say evidence-based is when you use our model, right? And so we're currently speaking with a few organizations in South Africa to set it up. And again, we suddenly with, with COVID, we had to suddenly think on our heels and just say, okay, wow, how do we do this training? Can we do it online? Do we have like a local person? So if I'm thinking, Sue, you and I, we do this in Austin because you guys have Zoom and I can have that and I can train you and you are the local person who oversees that people get the practical skills, you know, and we can, we can get this going somehow. It should be possible. That's what we want. Low, low threshold on any level, you know, access for clients, but also people becoming counselors and believing in it and doing it on any level. So yeah, and then you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and don't ask me for their handles, but just check friendship. <laughs> they're going to be, they're absolutely going to be in the show notes along with the TED Talk, along with other articles. We're going to pack it full of information because I know people are going to be so excited about this. So the training, you know, you provide this training, but there's also support, like, as I understand that there's a way that they become caseworkers. So I'm imagining an implemented in, say, a larger community that might have more services, that some of it is the friendship bench, that that person becomes the conduit and it maybe walks them to the food stamps or walks them to, you know, the different organizations or agencies, helps them get to the services that are already there, which is so powerful. Am I saying that correctly? That's exactly what they do in New York, I think. That's actually, that impressed us so much. Like my colleague Dixon and I, we were invited to New York to see how, what they're doing there and how they're doing it. And it was just absolutely amazing. And of course, I mean, the amounts of services like the city of New York had for its people, or I'm sure you have that too, or it's like, we don't have that so much here, but that's exactly it. If you have like someone who can hold your hand and just listen to you and make it safe, and then you can get the services you need. Wow, that would be stunning. Or just if you think, we haven't even talked about that, the loneliness, you know? Like when you think of the Western world's loneliness, people living by themselves, and you mentioned the block and you know who's living in the block, but how many people live in a setting where they kind of don't know who's living next door or upstairs or downstairs, or you meet people in the elevator, you've got no idea who they are. They have no idea who you are. And if we could just, again, make this more open. So it's, it's the listening, but it's also can people find this courage in them to start talking so that someone can listen? 
you know, I have these dreams. Yes, well, me too. I like I'm dreaming with you. Totally. And part of the motivation then to become a listener is all of those resilient outcomes that you found that these women had been through their, you know, deaths, early death, you know, all the things that happened, yet they weren't showing the same signs of PTSD. So that part of the motivation then to do this work, whether it be volunteer work or some sort of subsidy, is this quality of resilience that comes with being needed and being heard and being valued in the community. Belonging, so powerful. Our social brains. Right. If I, yeah. Exactly. And if I belong, I can probably cut down some of my fear because yes. I, I belong and I can trust and my group's going to have my back. And I mean, okay, we're dreaming. Oh, we're dreaming. We're dreaming. And I imagine there's many, many listeners that if they are still with us right now, they are dreaming with us. And I don't know the next step, you know, like, so somebody's really excited about this. Like, I'm excited about it. I'm not quite sure of the next step. But this is where we just each person in each situation to, to make an action to do something whether it be learning more about it, whether it be speaking to a leader in your small community, whether it be getting a coalition of people together to begin to talk about this and to brainstorm and to not let the idea die, right? To keep it alive in whatever form that it ends up taking, that we need each other. Right now, we've always needed each other, but it is so clear that we are all in this together. We're on this blue marble with this virus the virus doesn't discriminate, but of course it hits more vulnerable populations harder. So it's a great time to be sharing these kinds of resources and to get access to some of your leaders who probably want some help, especially in disenfranchised communities. So it's very exciting. And I guess to finish that thought was just that I'm not exactly sure if you're excited and you're listening. I'm not sure what to tell you specifically to do other than to learn more about this. But I guess I'm encouraging you to find the thing to do. It'll be so unique and individual based on who you are and where you are. But to move, to take action, behavioral activation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. So anything else? We're going to have, again, links to resources in the show notes. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? Any last words or a book you would like to recommend? For me, my my big story is always like, if we can make that change to listen more, it also means we have to listen to ourselves more and we have to learn to sit with our own feelings. And if we can all become more aware of those demons that sort of try to ride us all the time, whether that's perfectionism or like, I don't know, you know, the bigger, the nicer, the shinier, I don't know, the newer that kind of stuff and actually come back. You, you said it so nicely, Sue, in the beginning, the, the basics, like what works, you know. We all know if you buy the bigger car, you're not going to be happier. I mean, there's like research out on that, you know. But if you have like a really good chat with a good friend, like I had with Sue right now, and we feel like, you know what you said, the heart sort of like go and sink, that stuff. That is stuff that will stay with you, that will activate the neurotransmitter and the hormones and you will have oxytocin flowing through you and you'll just have a better sense of self. And I think the sense of self is this thing that you, that you need to show, not the car. You need to show your sense of self to yourself and others. 
I love it. That's what this podcast is all about, is sharing exactly inspiring stories like this and trying to bring these secure connections to anybody far and wide. So thank you for helping us do that. That is just incredible. And we're so privileged to have this time with you. All right. Well, thank you. And for those of you listening, please, if you uh, appreciate this kind of incredible, new, exciting content, a couple of things. If you rate us and review us, it really helps other people find us. It's really important. And we have not been asking for that for a long time because we forgot about it. But it really would be useful to go to your podcast player and just give us a quick rating and review. And then also, if you're really excited about this and would like to join in, we do have a Patreon experience where basically you can join as a neuro nerd (laughs) for as little as a dollar a month to just support this work continuing. And for those of you who are therapists and that might use this more for your clients and things, there's $25 a month and then you get a lot of other stuff, a lot of access and we'll post your information on our website and things like that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we will keep doing this work and I'm so glad you're out there. It's very wonderful to know you. Thank you for your wonderful podcast. This is an absolute pleasure. I'm still like all like honored. I'm so honored. Actually, that's the right word. Just like, wow. <laughs> so thanks everybody for listening and for your time and energy and everything. Thank you. It's a mutual honoring. That's for sure. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.